Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Parker. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Mark. It's a joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. We are, if you're just joining us, we are concluding our series through the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 4. If you can begin to work your way there, that can be a hard book to find. It's one of the small books at the end of the Old Testament tucked in to a bunch of other small books. Someone said, you know you're getting close if you start to see Star Wars characters like Obadiah and Nahum and Zephaniah, like you're, you're getting close to Jonah if, you, if you're there. So begin to work your way there. And the, the point of this series is really just kind of to reflect our heart of what we're praying for this, this year, that, that we would have a deeper understanding and, and experience of the mercy and the mission of God in our lives and through our lives. And so we're just asking God to do a work in us, and I believe that he is doing that through his spirit, through his word, and you, and just the conversations I've had with many of you uh, about that, I've, I've been very encouraged. Well, 20 years ago, about now, I walked into my first seminary class. It was a class called Hermeneutics, the Art and Science of Bible Interpretation, and I was terrified. And uh, shortly thereafter, turning in my first paper, realized I had good reason to be terrified with all the red marks on it, and I had a lot to go. But uh, as I was going into seminary, uh, a lot of the pastors from my church, I came from a very large church, uh, they they heard about that, and they would come up to me, and they would all say the 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 same dumb joke. Maybe you've heard this joke. I know Matthew's heard this joke. Where's Matthew out here? Uh, he's not here. Okay. Uh, it's just, oh, I hear you're going to cemetery. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and usually they would follow that up with a, a look of concern, and they're like, no, seriously, Mark, be careful going to seminary. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to go? I'm going to study the Bible? This is going to be amazing. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, no, no, seriously, there is, there, there is something that happens in seminary to so many people. That's the reason we call it cemetery. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, and so I uh, began to progress through there. And, and sure enough, uh, I realized what they were meaning. That there is a world of difference of knowing a lot about God and knowing God. And those two things are not the same thing. And so in seminary, it's a good thing to learn a lot about God, but if that's dis- divorced from knowing God, then it can become a spiritual graveyard. And by God's grace, that was not the case for me, though I did see it in many of my friends as we went through seminary. But by God's grace, for me, not because of anything in me, but really his grace to me and his means of providing a mentor for me uh, to remind me of the gospel, to, to apply what I was learning in my head to my heart. And so every week with Pastor Kita, he's been here and preached before, every week we'd, I'd come in and, and he would just be a living example of someone who passionately pursued Jesus in his life, someone who loved the Lord deeply, and that was just attractive. And he would ask me, he'd say, Mark, uh, so what, what are you learning in school these days? And I'd be like, well, I, I wrote a, a lot of papers. And he's like, well, what, what were they about? And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm doing some papers on just the, the attributes of God. And he's like, well, what'd you write? I'm like, I think I wrote this week on the immutability of God. And he'd be like, oh, Wow. I'm like, yeah, it's just a paper. He's like, no, no, Mark. Do you, do you understand what that means for you? I'm like, means I, I, I'm going to get a degree? I don't know what it means. What do you mean? What does it mean? He's like, that God is immutable, that he's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you, do you get this, Mark? I'm like, 
I guess that's good. He's like, no, 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 you you don't get it then. God is unchanged. Let's stop. Let's worship God for his immutability that he is a rock in your life forever and ever and ever. I'm like, yeah, let's worship God. Because our knowledge of God cannot be divorced from our experience of God or else it becomes just this kind of self-righteous kind of I've learned enough, I'm better than others that don't know kind of faith. In fact, this is, this is what Jonah has been dealing with. Jonah has divorced his knowledge of God from his experience of God, and it's leading him to a spiritual graveyard. But because God is gracious, compassionate, abounding in love, and all those attributes, because of that, God is in pursuit of his prophet, and he's in pursuit of you and me. And and often the way that he wakes us up to these spiritual realities, to apply them to our lives, is by surprises. Whether it's through his word or through circumstances that God is bringing into your life, the surprises of life and the word sometimes make us, shake us to say, oh, wow. Something is going on here. God, you are, you, you are good. <laughs> and we begin to look at it. And so Jonah is a book of surprises. Just by way of recap, we, we've seen in the first three chapters, surprise after surprise after surprise. God calls his prophet. He says, I want you to go, surprise number one, to the Ninevites, the most wicked, bloodthirsty, violent people, the enemies of God's people. People, I want you to go there. And that's a surprise. And the next surprise is the prophet gets up and he doesn't go there. He goes away and, and he goes to the, to the Tarshish. He wants to head away from the Lord. That's a surprise. And then there's a surprising salvation that happens. Not for Jonah. He gets thrown overboard. But the pagan uh, idol worshiping uh, sailors on the ship, they come to an experience of seeing and savoring the living God of the universe. And are, and, are, and are redeemed. And then the surprise of God's uh, surprising, peculiar grace through the fish, taking Jonah and, and preserving his life for three days. And then we get a surprising prayer inside the fish uh, of repentance and, and turning back to the Lord. And the, the fish surprisingly vomits him up on the land. And he goes into Nineveh. And he gives a surprising five word, it's five words in the Hebrew, sermon. 40 days. And Nineveh will be overturned. Eight words in English, but in Hebrew, it's five words. He says, 40 days, worst sermon ever preached. And then the surprising result, the best results any sermon has ever achieved. The whole city repents. The, 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 the most violent king on the planet repents in sackcloth and ashes. And he makes all the people do that as well. And because they don't know anything about repentance or how it, how it is, and they didn't hear about the mercy of God or anything like that, they, they just want to cover all their bases, and they make their animals repent. So there would have been a, a mooing rising up in the city of just this lowing repentance in the city. And then at the end of chapter 3, a surprise, God relents. But you would expect, if you're a good Jewish reader rolling out the scroll for the scroll to stop there. In fact, that's what most people think about when they think about the book of Jonah, the first three chapters. But then there's another chapter. And in fact, I'm going to argue that chapter four is the whole point of Jonah. If you don't get chapter four, you don't understand what's going on. That God is in pursuit of his prophet. And he's in pursuit of you and me. And he will have his way. 
And so would you pray with me as we turn our eyes to the text this morning? Father, we come before you in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't want to take lightly this moment that you would address us by your word, each of us, each person here, made in your image, innately valuable because of that. Each person, I believe, that you are pursuing with your love. And so, Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Jonah chapter four, the story continues. Verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Again, why is he angry? He's angry because his enemies, the Ninevites, have received mercy and grace from God. He's angry. A.W. Tozer used to say, he he was a pastor from a, a couple generations ago. He used to say, Christians don't tell lies, they go to church and sing them. And what he meant by that is, is not that the words on the screen are, are, are wrong and, and lies. What he meant by that is sometimes we gather in the room and, and we sing these songs, but our hearts are far from the songs, right? And not that we shouldn't sing the songs because part of, part of forming and shaping our hearts is singing the songs, singing the truth, even if we're not fully there. But, but, but Jonah is disappointed. And even this morning, I wondered about the text the last, on one of the screen last week, uh, we sang it, and I, I believe it on one level, but on the other level, uh, I'm like, is that true? God, you're never going to let me down? Because I've felt let down before. And I'm a pastor. I, I, I talk to people all the time that feel let down by God. But we're singing the song. <laughs> you're, you're never going to let, you're never going to let us down. And so how do we wrestle with that? Well, obviously, we're finite and God's infinite. We, we can get that. And, and, and we, we know the scripture that says God is working all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. So theologically, we can get that. But, but Jonah is having a hard time. He's divorced his knowledge of God from his knowing God. And he's angry that, he, that, that God is the kind of God that gives mercy and grace to people he doesn't want to give mercy and grace to. So he's exceedingly angry. Verse 2, and he prayed. He prays to the Lord, to the living God of the universe. He says, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste, haste for Tarshish, to flee to Tarshish. So he at the very beginning, we, we were wondering, maybe he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because that's surely a death sentence. Maybe he's a, afraid, but very early on in Jonah, we realized, no, it's not so much that. In fact, even in this passage, we'll see he's not afraid to die. He just hates the Ninevites. He, he hates who they are. He hates everything about them. And so he says, uh, that's why I made haste for Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Sometimes people have a problem with God because they don't understand God. And they've made a figment of their imagination and they reject that God. But Jonah is rejecting who God really is. Do you ever have a problem with who God really is? Jonah has a problem with that. And he says, I knew you were like this. How did you know that, Jonah? Jonah? Well, Jonah quoted 
what, what many scholars would call the thesis statement of the Old Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6. It's a direct quote, almost. But we'll get, back, we'll get to that next week. It's a, he quotes, he says, and in that verse it says, for, for God is gracious, merciful, uh, uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. He says, I don't want to be, I don't want you to be that kind of God. He, he hates the compassion of God, which is a great irony because who has received the most compassion, mercy, and grace and patience of God in the book of Jonah? It's not a trick question. Jonah has. If anyone ha- should, should be grateful for gr- God's grace and mercy, it should be Jonah. Jonah, in the belly of the well, uh, uh, confesses and repents and turns to God and receives mercy from God. He's already forgotten that he is someone in need of mercy. That can happen to religious people. Religious people can very quickly forget that they need God's mercy and grace as much as everyone else going forward. This is a problem that will continue. It's a problem today. Jesus would tell a story. In Luke chapter 15, he'll tell a story about two sons. And one son, he took the father's inheritance and he went off to a far land and he squandered it all on reckless living and prostitutes and all the bad things. And then one day he wakes up and he's like, my father's better than this. And I'm going to go back to my father. And he comes back and we tell the story as if the story was about the younger son. And it's not. The story ultimately is about the father and the heart of the father. As the son comes back, the father sees him a long way off and he runs to his son and he embraces his son. He says, you were lost and now you're found. You were dead to me and now you're alive. Let's throw a party, give him a ring, put a coat on him, slaughter the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. We're going to dance because he's alive again. And as the party's going on, the older brother, the dutiful son, the, the, the self-righteous religious brother comes and he, he hears and he says, what's going on there? And they say, your, your brother who was lost is now found. Uh, come on in. Let's, let's party with him. He's like, no, I'm not going in there. And so what does the father do? The father doesn't say, well, forget him. The father goes out to the older brother and he begins to plead with him. He says, come on. Come on. You come into the party. It's for all of us. He says, I've been, I've been here, I've obeyed everything you've said, I've done everything, and you haven't even given me a, a goat to, to slaughter with my friends. And, and the father's like, are you serious right now? Everything I have is yours. Just come into the party. Come into the party. And, and we see this in Jonah. He, he's, he, he's forgotten his need of mercy and grace. And when you forget that you have a need for mercy and grace, you, you look, start to look at other people as not worthy of the mercy and grace of God. Verse 3, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And this is a repeated theme that has come up in Jonah already. Again, it's the doctrine of the Imago Dei. He has ceased to see that that there are image bearers, though they are enemies of him, they are image bearers of God and they have innate worth and value because of that. And because he ceased to see the value in them, he has begun to cease to see the value in himself. He not only wants them dead, if they can't be dead, he wants to be dead. He's essentially saying to God, I want you to destroy the image, your image in me 
if I have to live on a planet with those kind of image bearers. He's devalued human life, even so that it affects him. And then God asks him a question as he pursues Jonah's heart. Verse 4, and the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? Not, why are you angry, Jonah? I mean, that's obvious. In fact, we would argue, and I think all of us in this room would agree, Jonah has a reason to be angry. His anger, in some senses, can be a righteous anger. The Ninevites were wicked people. It's personal for Jonah. They had mistreated, abused, murdered other family members and, and, and friends. But, but God says, do you do well to be angry? The question really is, how's that working out for you? How's the unforgiveness working in your heart, Jonah? How's, how's the bitterness in your heart? How's that working out for you? It reminds me of uh, Corey Tinboom. She a, a Holocaust survivor. And uh, her and her family got arrested for hiding Jews in Holland. They were taken off to various concentration camps. She would never see her mother and father again. Her best friend and sister, they had got, gotten separated during the course of this, but, it, but towards, towards the end of the war, they had been reunited in a women's concentration camp in Germany called Ravensbrück. And, and in Ravensbrück, uh, they were reunited, and uh, she tells the story in her book, uh, what's the name of the book? The Hiding Place. And, and she tells the story of just reuniting with her sister. And, and the story of how her sister was just mistreated, all of them mistreated by the Nazi guards and, and the shame and taking off their clothes and parading in front of the, the guards and, and being beaten and neglected and malnourished and all these things to the point that her sister Betsy would lose her life in Ravensbrook. Eventually, Cor, the allies came in. Corey Tim Broom was set free and, and she went back to Holland. But after a, a couple years in Holland, she, she went back to Germany to preach this message uh, of God's forgiveness and grace. And as she went back, she would go from town to town and she would tell the story uh, that, that, that God is a loving God, that he can forgive all of our sins. And she, she said since she lived by the sea, she, she would use this analogy that like God takes our sins and puts them on the bottom of the ocean. She would tell this story and she said that just for all the shame at that time, 1947, in the German people, they would not make eye contact. They would listen to her. And when she was done, no one would ask any questions. Everyone would get up and silently walk out. So she would do this. In 1947 in Munich, she gives this message. She tells her story about being in Ravensbrück. And as, as everyone gets up to leave, this time she sees fighting against the crowd a, a man coming down the aisle towards her. And as she sees him with his hat in her hands and uh, walking towards her, immediately she's taken back to Ravensbrück because it's one of the Nazi guards that mistreated her and is responsible for her sister's death. He began to walk to the, fore, to, the, to the front and she diverted her eyes and she's like, Lord, what, what are you doing here? I can't handle this right now. And she had, she had just told him about forgiveness and, and, and he said, hey, uh, of course he didn't recognize her because there are thousands and thousands of prisoners, but he just came up and he said, hey, I, I just want to let you know I was one of the Nazi guards in Ravensbrook and I, I just want to thank you for your message of grace and mercy. I want to let you know that I've become a Christian and it isn't, it isn't it so good that God can forgive even someone like me. And, and she's not making eye contact. She's, she's really just can't deal with it at that moment. And so he says, I heard that you were in Ravensbrook. 
And I just wanted to say, will you forgive me? And he sticks out her hand, his hand. She wrestles in her soul with what is she going to do in this moment. She writes about this later on. She says, and I, who spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. She says, and I stood there. She said, it felt like an eternity. Probably wasn't that long, but she just was wrestling in her soul. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? And as she continued to wrestle, she was asking God, okay, I'll give, I'll raise my hand, but you've got to provide the feeling. You've got to provide the forgiveness. She says, and still I stood there with this, the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. So it took everything she could to raise her hand and, and grab that hand and shake the hand of this former Nazi guard. She said, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner had... I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She said she, the, the love of God just filled her as she shook this hand and they began to weep and sob together. So God asked Jonah, how's that working out for you? All the bitterness, all the rage. Jonah doesn't answer, so God continues his pursuit in a surprising way. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself. He sat there under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah goes outside of the city. He looks and he's hoping maybe uh, the Ninevites will repent of their repentance. That they'll return to their wicked ways and God will bring the judgment that they so deserve. And so he's waiting and he's waiting. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed... So understand, God is in control. He's directing the narrative. He's making, he's doing the pursuing here. He appointed. Throughout Jonah's book, we see God appointing, God at work, God's sovereign, God's providence. God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Why? Because of the plant. So Jonah has been exceedingly mad, and now he's exceedingly glad. So this plant comes up over him, and he's like, yes, finally, finally something's going my way. And he gets out his iPhone, and he snaps a selfie and puts it on Instagram. He says, hashtag blessed. Check out this leaf. I'm sitting in the cool. I'm wondering if the city's going to get destroyed. Finally, this is, things are, are looking up for me. He's like, I'm so happy. I got a plant. <laughs> and so God's not done. God is trying to expose Jonah's heart here. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the bald head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Again, he has a death wish again. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see, do you see what God's doing to Jonah right now? He's, he's showing Jonah 
what's true of you and me so often, that our joy and our sorrow rises and it falls on circumstances that ultimately don't matter. He's exceedingly glad about a plant. He's exceedingly mad when the plant dies and he wants to die because of that. He's, he's on a roller coaster of emotion. If things are going good in his life, he's very happy. If, things, if circumstances seem to be going bad, he's very angry. And I get it. I'm like that. You're like that, right? I can let numbers on a screen that, that correspond to my Roth IRA determine whether or not I'm happy or I'm sad on a given day. Stupid. Stupid. He's saying God is exposing his heart. He's exposing the idols of his heart. He's exposing the, what Augustine would call the disordered loves of Jonah's heart. Augustine would say part of our problem is we love the, 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 the wrong things in the wrong way. So Jonah is a patriot, that's good. But if your patriotism is your God, that's an idol. And that has to be torn down. It's good to have a plant. It's good to have a house. It's good to have a green, green yard. It's good to have a 401k. But if those are your idols, they will steal you of joy and rob your heart. God's exposing them. <clears throat> Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Same question. But this time he says, for the plant? Jonah, you really going to let your, you really want to die because of a plant? He's exposing his heart and he says, and yes, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's kind of, kind of like a toddler who needs a nap, right? Like, you're, you're not being reasonable. Like, if, if Jonah was talking to me and, and he said that, I, it would be hard for me not to laugh in his face and then remember my pastoral counseling classes from seminary and be like, oh, it sounds like the plant was really important to you. Tell me about that. <laughs> I'm not a good counselor. <laughs> but he's just exposing our heart. We let the circumstances of our lives rise and fall. We love the, the wrong things in the wrong way. And, and, uh, and God is, is exposing his heart in these things. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. The word there, pity, is, is a word for compassion. You have compassion. You have regard. It really has this emotional attachment to it. It could be you weep for you come to the point of tears for a plant. Jonah's like, that's right. I'm, I'm angry enough to die because it died. He says, but which you did not labor for, nor did you make it grow. So you don't really have that much attachment to this plant. Which came into being in a night and perished in a night. So God has shown Jonah that knowing about God and knowing God are two different things. God has shown Jonah that he has idols in his heart. He loves the wrong things in the wrong way, as we do. And now God is, is continuing to pursue his prophet. God wants Jonah to have a heart like his. So he exposes his heart. And then he shows him God's heart. Verse 11. And should I not, should, and should not I pity, should I not have compassion should I not be brought to tears? Should I not weep over Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, image bearers, who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. <laughs> Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. See what God is saying? You didn't make the plant. Plant came in a day, was gone in a day. 
And that, it was your whole world. Let me tell you about people that I made in my image that are innately valuable. 120,000 of them in this city. They don't know their right hand from their left. They're completely lost. Should I not weep over them? And Jonah, by extension, should you not weep over them? Should you not reorder your priorities and your love so that you love the things that I love? Do you ever wonder why God has, has determined that you should live in such a time and a place in the most wealthy place and time in the history of the world? Is it not to leverage that for God's priorities? There's 2.2 billion image bearers on the planet that have no access to even the name of Jesus, let alone the word of God. Should that not make us weep? Or are we concerned about our plants? Oh, they're not called plants. They're called retirement funds. They're called our career. They're like all the other things. It makes God weep, he says. He says, Jonah, I want you to weep for what I weep for. It's 2.2 billion. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, when he would come back and give a report in England, he said the hardest place for him to go was into a church on Sunday mornings. He would go into a church and he says the hardest thing in that moment was as he heard the English voices rise up in praise of God, all he could think about was the thousands of Chinese image bearers dying every day without access to the gospel. We exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. I've prayed, God, shut down this place if we don't have a heart for the things that you have a heart for. Break our hearts. Let us weep over the nations. Let us weep over the people that do not know you and have no access to you. Let us weep over our disordered loves. Let us weep for the things that we prioritize that ultimately have no value, but their image bearers do. Why don't we weep for that? Why don't we get on our face for that? God says, should I not pity that? Should I not cry over that? Is this not the reason why God has filled up our bank accounts and given us so much for the glory of his name among the nations? If I told you right now, I'll give you $12 billion, the only catch is you only get it till midnight tonight and you die tonight. And you can't take it with you, can't give it away. If I told you that, you would not take that deal. You're like, that, that, that would be meaningless. And yet the Bible tells us our life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then dis- disappears. We think maybe if I had 12 billion for 80 years, that would be good. But it's just like a day. And yet we give our lives to things that ultimately don't matter. And God says, I weep for this. I weep that my name and my renown is not seen and savored among all the earth. So what, is, what does Jonah do? Look at the next verse. It's over. (laughs) There is no next verse. It leaves us hanging. You're like, well, well, what did Jonah do? Did he respond? Then you begin to realize what's going on here. This whole time, we thought God was pursuing Jonah with his arrow. And at the very last moment, Jonah disappears. And we realize the arrow is pointed at us. Same thing in the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son when the father comes out and he says, come in, son. Come into the party. It's, the story stops there. We don't know what the son does because the arrow turns back to us. What will you do? How is God working in you in this? In what ways have you prioritized knowing about God and not knowing God? 
In what ways is God sifting your heart and showing the, the, the idols or the disordered loves of your heart? In what ways is God shaping and forming your heart to be like his heart? I can't, I can't pretend to know all that God is doing in this room. I don't even know all that God is doing in my heart. But in a moment, we're going to take just some time to just reflect on God's arrow pointed at us individually. So what happened to Jonah? Well, we have a, we have a hint. We have the book of Jonah. He would have had to tell somebody about this. He would have had to tell about how hard-hearted he was. He would have had to tell about the prayer that he prayed in the well. He would have had to tell about that, that, that amazingly awful prayer, God, I don't like that you are compassionate, kill me. He would have had to tell all these nasty things about himself. What kind of person is willing to tell that story? The only kind of person who understands that they are simultaneously a sinner and yet secure in the love of God. Can you tell that story? I, I believe God gets his man, Jonah. I believe that's why we have this. But the question is, for you and for me, what are we going to do with Jonah? On Thursday, I was in the library across the street. I like to write sermons sometimes overlooking Parker, praying for the city, writing the sermon. So I turn my chair to my back to the library, and I'm looking over the city, and I'm actually writing about how Jonah is acting like a, 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 a toddler that just needs a nap. He's having a ten, temper tantrum. And then all of a sudden, I'm not lying, I hear this. Jonah, Jonah, come here, honey. I was like, shut up. And I, I started I start typing. I was like, I'm not even going to turn around. I'm just going to type everything I hear in the next few moments. And I just heard this mother to this toddler. Come on, Jonah. This way, Jonah. I'm over here, Jonah. We're going to go downstairs, Jonah. Come with me, Jonah. Just typed all that out. You know what? She didn't just say it one time. She wasn't like, Jonah, oh, well, you're not coming? Okay, I'm out. <laughs> no. Why? She's a loving mother. I have no doubt that if, if little toddler Jonah would have ran the other way, she would have upped her game. She would have done whatever it took to take Jonah with her. And in that, in that moment, I heard something else in that moment. I heard this. I heard, Mark, Mark, I'm over here. Come this way, Mark. <laughs> Follow me, Mark. God will do whatever it takes to pursue you. He is pursuing you even right now. This is not actually the last word in the Bible of Jonah. Uh, the last word comes from the lips of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, the, tax, the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus to give them a sign for his authority. In verse 40, Jesus points to Jonah. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And listen to this. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, look at Jonah and see me. Jonah is the antitype. I am the fulfillment. Jonah goes outside the city hoping that the judgment and wrath of God will fall on the city. God could not stand far off in the city. He took on human flesh. He entered into the city. But before he got to the city in Jesus, he comes to the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over the city because they don't know their right hand from their left. They do not know what they're doing. 
He goes into the city on a mission of mercy and love for the city. Jonah waits for the judgment of God to fall on the city. Jesus takes up a cross and takes that cross outside of the city. And he takes on the judgment of God for the city on himself. Jonah was self-righteous. Jesus gave his life away. Jonah hated his enemies. The Bible tells us that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So God wants to renew our affections. He, he wants to uh, uh, show us that, that knowing him and, and knowing him are two different things. He, he wants us to see the idols in our hearts and ultimately he wants our hearts to reflect his heart to the nations. To that end, let me pray for us. But I want to just pray a little bit differently this morning. I, w- I want some time of silence to just kind of reflect on what God is doing in this room right now and for you as God turns his arrow towards you. Let's pray. Once again, Father God, we come before you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I do believe that you are stirring up things in in people's hearts right now. Maybe there's people that are going through a storm. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them your voice calling them. Lord, there's some of us that have thought that if we just know a lot of facts about you, that we would know you. Lord, I pray that we would repent of self-righteous religious knowledge, that we'd come to a true experience of grace through faith in you. Lord, all of us have disordered loves and idols of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd do your kind work of bringing us to repentance in this moment. And Father, none of us have a heart like you have a heart for the nations. Would you please form and fashion our hearts to be like your heart? So Lord, right now speak. Speak to each person here what it is you desire to work into their hearts and their minds and their lives this week. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you weren't like Jonah who stood far off waiting for condemnation to come. You took it on yourself. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Father, if there's anyone in here that has never confessed faith and for the first time has seen you and savored you as the living God of the universe, so Lord, I pray that they'd come to a point of glad repentance place their trust in you and and be transferred, as the scripture said this morning, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son you love. Lord, help us to uh, be the kind of people that celebrate the things that are worth celebrating. Be the kind of church that loves the things that you love. We ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.